Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, which is our standard procedure. The reason is it's a pedagogical tool just to reinforce and to teach us the importance of maintaining short accounts, recognizing that we have two options in life. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh or the sin nature. And if we're walking according to the Spirit, we are in fellowship with God. We're enjoying that fellowship with God. We're moving forward. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives in terms of producing maturity and sanctifying us. But when we sin, that process is is stopped until we recover. And recovery occurs when we confess sin. So we just use this opportunity to reinforce that, to remind everyone of the importance of being in fellowship in the Christian life. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for your grace in our lives that you give us that which we need in order to face and handle the uh, adversity that we face, all the situations and circumstances, whether they are tests of uh, prosperity or tests of adversity. But underlying all of these things is the issue that we are to walk by faith. We are walked by means of faith, trusting in you, trusting in what you have revealed to us in your word. As fathers, we continue this study focusing on uh, the Faith Rest Grill, we pray that you would help us to understand how this fits within the structure of our own Christian life, that we might be challenged to improve and be more focused in terms of our uh, use of your word and use of your promises in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in First Thessalonians, and we are at the end of First Thessalonians 1.8. And in this passage, there is the emphasis on uh, the reputation that had gone out from Thessalonica uh, around Achaia and Macedonia on their faith toward God, as Paul states in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. The issue here is, first of all, faith toward God in terms of salvation, which is happens at the instant of salvation when we put our faith and trust in the gospel, and we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for us, paid the penalty for our sins. Following salvation, the faith rest drill, what we the term we often use, that is ongoing faith and trust in Christ, and the gospel, excuse me, faith and trust in the Word of God and the promises of God, is the basic way in which a Christian grows. It's foundational. So we're taking some time to sort of pause in our verse by verse exposition of First Thessalonians one to look at the importance of the of the faith rest drill. In First Thessalonians one eight. 
Paul has said, it is your faith toward God has gone out so that we need not to say anything. The word that's translated faith here is the word pistis, which refers to expressing confidence. Uh, the, it's the idea of believing something. It is there, it's a noun, but it is what's called a noun of action. It expresses the act of belief towards something. And as we've studied in uh, previous, uh, previous lessons, faith is accepting something is true. It is uh, trusting. It's expressing a confidence in that which is true. And that uh, should have as its result uh, an ongoing expression of that of that confidence or truth. When we look at it in terms of the of uh, ongoing faith in the Christian life, it is the foundational spiritual skill, not the not the bottom line foundation, but it relates to everything in the Christian life. Every spiritual skill. This is why Paul makes statements such as we have in Colossians two six that as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did we receive the Lord? We trusted in promises of Scripture related to salvation. It wasn't just an abstract faith in God. It was faith directed towards specific statements in Scripture that explain the gospel. Uh, statements that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an object to that faith which is expressed in those salvation promises that if we trust in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection, we have eternal life. So it's not faith in a vacuum. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.7, Paul states, We walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, we walk by faith, but he doesn't say there. He's just using the word faith there as a as, as sort of a one-shot word. Uh, in contrast, it, he's talking about sight. So you look at something uh, through empir- empiricism, and we see something. So our faith is in our sight. So it's faith in the word versus faith in our empirical observations. Uh, That's ultimately what is being said here. So we walk by means of faith in God's word. So we have to understand how important this is, that this is foundational for understanding the Christian way of life and the mechanics of the Christian way of life. And in the past, I have taught the Christian way of life in terms of ten basic skills or spiritual skills that must be mastered in any person's life in order to go forward. And a skill emphasizes the fact that this is something that is practiced over and over again. We get the same idea when we use the word faith, rest, drill. It's that concept of drill that comes across. If you've been in any kind of of athletics then you know that you went through various uh, drills or skill training in order to master that uh, th- that particular field. Whether, and if you've been involved in, in dance or you've been involved in music, then you had to practice technique exercises. You had to go through various drills just to develop your skills, and you'd practice these things over and over and over again until they became second nature to you, until it entered into muscle memory, into mind memory, so that when you were in certain situations, this is what you would automatically uh, do in those situations, and you wouldn't have to stop and think about each movement and each each activity. And this is why 
uh, practice is so important, but it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So we have to pr- develop these skills. Well, when we look at this in, the, in terms of the Christian life, I've developed the illustration of a soul fortress. God is often referred to in the Psalms as our, he's our defense, he's our rock, he's our fortress. Uh, when we are surrounded by these spiritual skills, then they enable us to continue to walk by means of the Spirit. But when we fail to use these skills, uh, when we have a, are, are faced with certain situations, when we uh, don't practice these skills, then what happens is we default over to the sin nature and start walking according to the uh, flesh, and we're trying to solve the problems in our own energy, our own power, and in our own effort, which always fails. So we start with, the, for example, the first skill is confession. This is our recovery mechanism. We confess or admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and we're immediately forgiven of those sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Automatically, as a result of that, we are restored to a position where we enjoy our our fellowship, our dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, which is described by different terms, the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, walking by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16, and it emphasizes this ongoing moment-by-moment dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that, that the Christian way of life is a spiritually empowered way of life. It is a supernatural way of life that is not in any way dependent upon uh, upon our own efforts, our own skills. The Christian way of life is not simply a life of morality. It is a life of spiritual dependence. It is energized by God the Holy Spirit. There are many people who can live moral lives, but that's not the same as living a Christian life, which is a walk by the Holy Spirit. So how do we energize that? Well, because we understand the principles of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We believe that that's true. So this is the beginning of the faith rest real. We are looking at that passage of Scripture, and we are we believe that it's true with the result that we confess our sin, believing that this is the reality that God immediately forgives us and cleanses us. So the faith rest drill, in essence, is even part of or the foundation for that first spiritual skill of confession of sin. It's part of the second spiritual skill to walk by the Spirit because we walk by the Spirit by means of faith, faith in what the Word of God says. So the third skill that we talk about is the faith rest drill and how that develops and how that is manifested, and that's going to be the focus of the next several lessons. Faith rest drill is also foundational in the uh, in grace orientation grace orientation basically means to orient our thinking in life towards God's grace, God's grace in terms of his provision of everything for us at the instant of salvation, that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness, and we take our our minds and we understand what is stated in those verses and we embrace that by faith. We mix our faith with those statements and we live on the basis of that. So we're going to operate on the basis of grace orientation, And that is an ongoing process that works along with the next stage, which is doctrinal orientation. The key verse for both of these is 2 Peter 3.18, that we grow in the grace 
and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doctrinal orientation, the emphasis is on knowledge and the accumulation of knowledge of Scripture. This comes about through the reading of Scripture, through the personal study of Scripture and meditation on Scripture. It comes about through going to Bible studies, listening on video, listening through various media, uh, studying the notes, reading books, these kinds of things that focus our attention upon the Word of God and help us to think more deeply and more profoundly about what God has revealed to us. And as we structure our thinking around the divine viewpoint of Scripture, then this impacts our perception of reality, that our perception of reality now is aligned to what God has built into the universe as its creator. And so as we align our thinking to the truth of God's word, we're walking, as as, uh, 3 John says, we're walking according to truth. And as we're walking according to truth, we're walking in the realm of reality. If you're not walking according to the Word of God, then you're divorced from reality. To the degree that you deny what Scripture says, you're living in a fantasy world. You're living in a world of your own construction, which has nothing to do with reality. And the more we get divorced from the Word of God, the more we're divorced from reality. This leads us to... The next stage in our uh, spiritual life as we master these foundational skills, faith, rest, real, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation, God the Holy Spirit uses this biblical truth that is in our soul to produce maturity as we apply that to our circumstances in life. This leads us out of spiritual infancy into spiritual adulthood where we begin to focus on God's destiny for us that we call the personal sense of our eternal destiny, that God is training us today for a, an eternity of serving him that begins in the millennial kingdom when we will be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that goes on into eternity. The next three spiritual skills are all related to love. It's all related to this focus towards God, a personal love for God. As we come to understand all that God did for us, we come to focus on his uh, magnificent love for us, and that creates a response in our soul toward him that our love for him grows and expands. Uh, A young child expresses a child's love towards his parents, and often it is It's just a a modicum uh, or a small percentage of what an adult's love can be because it doesn't have a lot of knowledge and there's not a lot of integrity behind it. It's a love that's more related to to trust and, and an appreciation for being taken care of and being loved. So as a as an infant believer, we do have a love for God, but but as we grow, this love for God expands and matures and changes, just as the love that a one-year-old has for his parents is quite different from the love that a mature 30, 40, 50-year-old has uh, for, for parents. As we come to love God, that impacts our love for others. Love for God becomes the prime motivator in our love for others. We are to love others as ourselves, Scripture teaches. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. 
And we call this an impersonal love for all mankind, not because it's somehow mechanical, not because it's depersonalized, but because we don't need to have a personal relationship with the person we're loving in order to love them. Uh, we can express this towards a person on the freeway who is driving uh, uh, erratically or who has cut us off. Uh, we can express this towards the person at the checkout counter. We can express this towards the person on the customer service line. All of these are examples of situations when normally the uh, sin nature wants to take over, and we want to treat that person in a less than honorable way and uh, and in anger or bitterness or resentment or with disrespect So because we don't know them. But uh, when we do have a personal relationship with somebody, we often won't say that uh, say or do the things we do if we don't know them or we don't we won't see them again. Uh, but this impacts those situations where we don't have a personal relationship or a personal relationship is not required. So it is it is based on based on that. Excuse me. Had the ringer turned off and it didn't work. I need a new phone. Okay, occupation with Christ. This is then our focus is on Christ. He is the author and completer of our faith, according to Hebrews 12.1, and we fix our eyes upon him. He is the focus of our concentration. And so as we come to understand the word of God itself, as it focuses us on Christ, who is our high priest, and we are in him, then we understand the importance of that relationship that we develop because we are in Christ, our close identity uh, with him. The end result of this is that we have a joy in our soul that is inexpressible. That doesn't mean that we aren't distressed with circumstances and situations in life. Uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ was to go to the cross, the night before he went to the cross, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew, in his gospel, uses three different words to describe the state of our Lord's soul. He is anguished, he is distressed, and he is uh, very uh, upset. He is emotionally upset, but he doesn't sin. Having those emotions doesn't mean you sin. Having those emotions is part of the emotional makeup that God has given us. It's what we do with them. When we are in situations where we are expressing anxiety, anguish, distress, that should drive us to trusting in God. And so this is part of our occupation with Christ. We understand how he implemented the faith rest drill before he, the night before he went to the cross. Uh, he implemented the faith rest drill through prayer. A lot of people say, well, when you see these ten uh, spiritual skills or these ten, I call them stress busters, problem-solving devices, prayer is not there. That's because prayer is simply a tool or a way in which we express some of these uh, toward God. That's what our Lord did the night before he went to the cross as he's facing the greatest test he would ever face when he would be identified with our, with our sin. Yet at the same time, he had maximum joy and happiness in his soul. He was stable, but he was facing a distressing situation, and we can do the same thing. By applying these skills, we're abiding in Christ. 
continuing our dependence upon him, uh, John 15, 1 through 5. And we are also walking in the light, as uh, John describes it in 1 John. And this is all dependent upon the exercise of our volition to utilize these skills that God has given to us. So right now we just want to focus on the faith rest drill and think about that and how we implement that in our lives. The first stage of the faith rest drill is simply to claim a promise. I emphasize this over and over and over again because a lot of people come and they understand broad principles of Scripture, but they're somehow divorced or cut free from Scripture. We need to know Scripture, whether we've memorized verses whole verses, whether we've just memorized uh, short phrases. Uh, when we look at uh, a verse, we need to claim that. That is, we are in essence saying, God, this is something you have promised. I'm relying upon that, and I'm depending upon your faithfulness behind this promise uh, to fulfill your obligation as stated in this particular promise. A second step is that as we think through that promise, as we reflect upon it, we recognize that there is an underlying uh, structure of reasoning behind that verse. It's a rationale uh, behind that verse. For example, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. There's a, a conditional clause at the beginning stating that there is something that we are to do. And that if we do that, then God in turn will do something else. But God's, there's a statement about what God will do in terms of uh, forgiving us and cleansing us of all, all unrighteousness is conditioned upon our confession. And so we think that through and we reach certain conclusions as a result of that. And the conclusion that we arrive at as we think through 1 John 1, 9 is that I have sinned and I need to admit or acknowledge that sin to God the Father and he will therefore... Uh, forgive me and cleanse me, and I am right with him. Again, I may not be right with some of the people I offended. I may not be right with the law, and I may have to be answerable for criminal activity if I committed crimes, but I am right with God. And so that's the starting point, then, of becoming right with others. And so this is basically a summary of the procedure that, that should go, th- go through our minds when we are trusting in the Lord. Now, what I want to do in this little mini-series is to talk about some promises and help us go, go through this three-step process as we look at these different promises coming to understand how we can improve and develop our own skill in the faith rest drill. This is an important lesson for all of us, no matter how seasoned we are as believers. I find that we have to go back through these these lessons again and again, and I find that even uh, as a pastor, just going back through these lessons and developing them, it just does uh, wonders to uplift uh, my own soul when we realize we live in such a nasty world. Uh, the cosmic system around us just seems to get worse and worse all the time. We all face personal problems and challenges in life. 
and adversities, plus we live in a world that, that unfortunately is not always pleasant anymore. We see the rise of criminality in urban environments. We see problems in the broad uh, spectrum of the economic system, and we, we worry, and many people are concerned about the uh, about the future of the economy. We've now been living at a time where we've had uh, allegedly come out of a recession, but it's the weakest recovery in history, and there are some people who don't think it's been any recovery at all. <clears throat> and it, because of some of the ways in which this has been manipulated, there are many people who expect another crash and possibly a massive crash. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that we all hear these kinds of things and read these kinds of predictions, and these do weigh upon us. And so living in the midst of, an, uh, of a... Of, an, of a world that is not dependable, and trust me, even when we thought it was, it wasn't. Uh, that was just an illusion. So it's really good to let, recognize how unstable the world is because our hope is really, as the hymn says, built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So we just need to focus upon the word. So the first promise I want us to look at is in Isaiah 40:31, one I cite many times. Uh, before Bible class, and one of the reasons I cite those verses over and over and over again is because I know that there are many people who just don't have the time or the discipline to memorize Scripture. And if you listen to Bible class for very long, if you're here, then at least you should be uh, able to remember the promises that I Sight week after week after week. In fact, I can usually see most of the congregation lip-syncing through those promises uh, each and every Sunday. And I got started doing that some years ago. Uh, I remember hearing Charlie Clough tell a story about uh, that, that a pilot, an Air Force pilot, told him when he was pastoring in Lubbock. This was a, pa- uh, a pilot who was flying one of the first bombing missions in, uh, in, in North Vietnam. And this pilot had a background where he had come out of Baraka Church, as Charlie had. And back in the 50s and 60s, when I was a kid growing up at Baraka, Pastor Theme would often stand up in the pulpit and he would quote certain verses over and over again, much like I do. He didn't do that so much later on, but in the early years he did. And this pilot related the story that when he was flying in formation, going in on the, these first bombing runs into North Vietnam, that they would immediately start taking anti-aircraft fire. And in, in the strategy or uh, the tactics of the of, of a bombing mission, all of your, your B-52 bombers would be in formation and stay in formation. The idea was to stay there, that no matter what happened, you keep your position in formation, and each plane could then uh, exercise defense for the other planes around them, and the entire formation was set to provide protection for the entire formation. And if you started moving, nobody would know which way everybody else was going, and you would end up having accidents and problems and uh, other things would would interfere. You can't just uh, dip and dive and uh, try to maneuver your way out of the anti-aircraft fire. But that was exactly what you wanted to do, this pilot related, that as soon as all of the 
uh, all, <coughs> all the shells began to burst around them, their instinct was to start dodging and to start moving. And it took everything in your, from your training and your discipline to not start uh, trying to dodge the anti-aircraft fire. And he remembered that uh, as the, uh, just seconds into uh, being, uh, receiving the anti-aircraft fire, that he heard in his mind the voice of Pastor Theme reciting these promises of God and how that just had a, the effect of stabilizing him, calming him. Uh, he returned to a position of discipline and focus and uh, executed his mission. So that's why I repeat these promises over and over again. I believe in the basic uh pedagogical principle not to teach things so you um, so you can remember them but teach them so you can't forget them so in worst case scenarios you, these will be these verses at least will be locked into your soul so Isaiah 4031 states but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint so this is an important verse. It has a context. Whenever we look at a promise, one of the things that you ought to think through when you memorize Scripture is to stop and think about the surrounding verses. And when we look at these surrounding verses, if we go back just a little bit to verse 28, Isaiah says, <clears throat> says Have you not known? Have you not heard? See, he's addressing people who are getting ready to go through some, some real crises in terms of military attack. And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? He's taking their mind back to Scripture. He says, the everlasting God, the Lord, Yahweh, uh, the God who, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So right away he's putting our focus upon the character of God, who it is that we're trusting. Then he talks about what God does. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Isaiah 40:30, he says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. They sh and then he says, But those who wait upon the Lord. So verse 31 is a contrast to what he stated in verse 30. On the one hand, you have young people who are full of vigor and strength and power. It seems like the youth can do anything, and especially those who have grown into their uh, later years just yearn for that power ability they had when they were young. But even that fails. And so in contrast to the, the, the greatest illustration of strength we might be able to come up with, we have the fact that God gives an even greater strength, and that's the thrust of the uh, 31st verse. So what we do is, as we approach this, we are going to learn to claim a promise. We take our mind and we either... Uh, claim the whole promise, recite the promise. Sometimes it's not just reciting it once, it's reciting it over and over and over again until it begins to uh, calm us down and we begin to focus more on God and on his word than on the circumstances and the problem. So we have to focus on this. We have to grab a promise, a fragment of scripture, a verse that we've memorized, something like that. It's not just a matter of believing principles. When 
Jesus is facing the uh, temptation of Satan in the wilderness, he doesn't respond by saying, well, let's look at a doctrinal principle here and talk about uh, the theology of superlapsarianism. No, he quotes scripture each and every time. He countered the temptation by quoting a specific scripture that was targeted to that particular attack. So it's not... Christianity is not an abstract philosophical system uh, that you have in many of these self-help type programs. It is a uh, specific way of thinking based upon what God has revealed to us, and what we are doing is capturing exactly what God has said and using God's very words as the foundation for what we are what we are thinking and what we are going to do. So it's not simply believing an abstract principle, but is believing scripture. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in scripture, something I'll reiterate many, many times. Well, underlying this, we have the importance of developing scripture memory. We have to have a plan, set a goal. Uh, perhaps it's uh, every week. Uh, memorize two verses, that's not hard. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to memorize a set of verses. For example, I just had Isaiah 40, 28 to 31 on the screen. Memorize uh, all four verses. Then you have a thought flow. There's a logical progression there. And some people find it easier to memorize a, a group of verses than just one verse. There's also people who like to memorize whole chapters. They memorize maybe John 3, 1 through 18. Or they memorize Romans 8. Or they memorize Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. Uh, things of that nature. And they memorize a lot of scripture that gets into their soul. And then, of course, you have to review and review and review. Otherwise, they tend to drop out through those little holes in the colander of our mind. So we uh, have a plan. And if you're a family, you can do this around the dinner table or the breakfast table or at some time make a game out of it with your kids. Have a system of rewards. There's nothing wrong with rewards. The Lord uses that, and we'll use that at the judgment seat of Christ. You can write verses down uh, again and again and again just uh, by the act of repeating that. That helps to memorize it. Uh, you can write them on three-by-five cards and, and tape them up on the dashboard so you can review it while you're going to work. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways in which you can do this. I always like the way the navigators taught this. The navigators emphasized Bible memory. That was part of the thing that they were known for uh, when they first started back in the 1940s. They were a camp, uh, parachurch campus or, uh, ministry, but their emphasis was on Scripture memory, and they had a little system. You can still buy it from their website called the Topical Memory System, and it was a basic set of, I think, 64 verses that came, and they were categorized according According to topics, prayer, salvation, uh, confession, trust, uh, essence of God, all of these different um, different categories. And you get, they come in a little packet, and you can get a little verse pack and carry that with you in your pocket and review wherever you go. And that's a great tool, and you can get them in all kinds of different translations now, so that's always helpful. But their technique was you would learn the, the, the verse according to its topic. So you might say prayer. And then you would repeat the address of the verse. Every verse has, a, has an address, like a street address. So you'd say prayer, First Thessalonians 5.18, pray without ceasing. 
and then close by repeating it. First Thessalonians 5.18, prayer. And every time you memorize it, you not only uh, cite the verse, but you cite its reference and the category. And that gets embedded in your minds so that you're memorizing these, these verses according to according to these categories. And see, that's a simple verse to memorize. Anybody can do that real quickly. Just 1 Thess 5.18, pray without ceasing, 1 Thess 5.18. And you've got it, got it down. Just say that over and over again after a week. Then you've got that down. You can add one or two other verses to that. So you can uh, set that as your goal to memorize some scripture and to uh, claim those. It also has a lot of extra benefits. It trains your mind, develops concentration. Uh, who knows, it may even have long-term consequences for offsetting the uh, or delaying the onset of Alzheimer's or other forms of senility. There's a lot of great promises that we can go through in Scripture that remind us about God and what he has provided for us. For example, in terms of the faithfulness of God, in Psalm 119, 89, and 90, we read, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, Thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Thou didst establish the earth, and it stands. Notice there's a rationale there that if God established the earth and continues to keep it going and is faithful in that, then he can be faithful in his promises to us. In Numbers 23:19, we're told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? We also have passages dealing with enemies and how to handle enemies, like Hebrews uh, 13.6. We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Psalm 118.6. Now, you may have all kinds of enemies. They may be people at work who are out to... uh, uh, wipe out your reputation or to get your job or to take away your rep- reputation. This is a promise you can claim for something like that. And go back to Psalm 118 and read through Psalm 118 to get the original context as you're working through me- uh, memorization. Psalm 60, verse 12, the God, uh, through God, we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. This is just another way of expressing the same thought that's in, that David expressed in facing Goliath, that the battle is the Lord's. He is the one who's going to give us victory. That didn't mean that David just sat up on the hillside looking at Goliath. He went down. He collected his five, five small round stones that were probably about the size of a large marble, and he was able with his sling to uh, throw them at an at a extremely high rate of speed, and that is how he was able to knock out, uh, knock out Goliath. We have examples from, uh, from archaeology of, of the kind of, of stones that were thrown by the, sling, the slingers in the various armies, and they would be about this big around up to about the size of a golf ball. And so these could be extremely uh, deadly, and the aim of the archers, I mean of the uh, slingers, was extremely deadly. So uh, David still had to get up, go down, find the rocks. He still had to go through the motions of uh, whirling it around his head and letting it go, and yet he was trusting God that that God would guide the stone directly to its target. He would do 
his best on his end and let God take over and deal with the results and the consequences. And so we trust in God that, and we're not going to be afraid of circumstances of what people can do to us or who our enemies are, no matter how powerful they are. Our focus is on the Lord. We have other promises that help us when we feel down or discouraged, depressed. Psalm 37, uh, 28, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones, no matter how down we feel sometimes. No matter how much we feel like God must be concerned about the war in Afghanistan and taking care of soldiers over there, he's just forgotten about me. God never does. He's omnipresent and omniscient, and he never leaves us or forsakes us. So the Lord does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Isaiah 40:29, the very passage we're talking about, reminds us that God gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. He is our protector, Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Look at all the metaphors that are used there to define how God protects us. Rock, fortress, deliverer, uh, Shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold. You have six different ones that are used there. He is the one who gives us comfort. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He understands the trouble that we're going through. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. God hears our prayers. We also have uh, psalms that talk about uh, safety. God provides security for us no matter what happens. We may not have all that we wish we had, but our security is in the Lord. But he who listens to me shall live securely. This is wisdom talking, a personification of God. He who listens to me, that is to wisdom, may live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. God helps us, Psalm 42:11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. That's going to be a key word we look at in these many of these promises. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. People are often overwhelmed by guilt, failure from in past actions, and we need to be reminded that God wipes out our transgressions. So, um, uh, Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. I even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm one hundred three twelve. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. This means that no matter what our failure might be, if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life, and we can go forward, and the past sin is no longer an issue. There may be consequences we have to deal with, but God is going to give us the strength and the ability to face those consequences in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and in the strength of God's Word. When we face many circumstances, we're fearful and anxious. These may be health crises, financial crises. They may be uh, related to our our health, our homes, our, our, our friends. Uh, but Scripture says, don't be fearful. Isaiah 41.10 is a favorite promise, not too far from the one we're studying in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think I learned that when I was about seven years old. One of my favorite promises in the Word. Uh, and also we see Isaiah 40:31, the one w- that we're uh, talking about in terms of our, our, our study 
uh, tonight. Other passages dealing with fear and anxiety. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we have these promises that we embrace with our mind, we wrap our mental arms around these and hold on to these, and we are in effect saying, God, I am holding you to this particular promise. So the promise that we're looking at here is in Isaiah 40:31, talking about how God will strengthen and embolden those who wait upon him. Now, what we should do whenever we're claiming a promise is is what the Scripture calls meditate on that promise. Um, meditation has been compared to what a, a cow does in chewing the cud. He chews it and chews it and chews it and swallows it, then comes back up and chews it, chews it, chews it. He gets everything out of it, all the nourishment, nutrition out of it that he possibly can. And this is the idea of of meditating on Scripture. We think about it, we think about it. Get a notebook out while you're memorizing. Keep writing the verse down. As you do, questions will come up. Well, what does this mean? What's the Hebrew word here? What's the Greek word here? How is this line connected to the previous line? Is this a contrast? Is this a something in addition to something else? Is this a, expressing a condition? Or is it uh, uh, somehow expressing a conclusion? Uh, telling me something to do, and we work through some of those details as we memorize the Scripture, and it helps us to get into the thinking of the writer so we understand the thought that lies behind the promise. And often as we do so, it'll drive us back to Bible study. This is why... uh, Taking the Bible study methods course is is helpful. Learning some basic skills to look up keywords. Uh, we'll see some of that in what we're doing uh, with this passage in this lesson. We look up certain keywords, and that connects us to other passages that express similar or identical principles. So that's all, all, also very very helpful. So a couple of things I want to point out as we go through this. First of all, the verse begins with a contrast. It begins with the word but. And this shows that it's contrasting with that which comes uh, comes before it and what comes in the verse before it. In fact, you ought to have your Bibles open to Isaiah 40, uh, 31, because this just will help us think through this particular passage a little more uh, a little more clearly, and if you look at the verse just immediately preceding it, uh, the uh, Isaiah is saying that on the gives this illustration of the youth. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. So you're facing overwhelming circumstances and physical strength and stamina. And even the positive optimism of of the youth is not enough. It is such an overwhelming situation described here that that physical strength, the mental strength that that even a young person has is not going to be enough. So he is contrasting uh, with youth and young men. Compared to those, uh, compared to their, uh, an illustration of their strength, that even they will fail. They will faint, weary, and utterly fall. There's a progression uh, of, of thought there, development of thought there, indicating that, that natural strength, human viewpoint, is not adequate. It's not enough. 
And so he draws this this uh, contrast out that these young men in the in the bloom of their strength, the bloom of life, uh, succumb to the effects of of the, this disaster. They're, they have uh, run out their strength, and there's nothing more that they they can do. And any kind of outward uh, obstacle will cause them to uh, cause to, to them to fail that they will feel overwhelmed and defeated immediately. And this often happens to us in life. We hit certain things in life that we just feel are unsurmountable, nothing we can do. We feel completely defeated, depressed, discouraged, maybe even suicidal, simply because uh, we don't see a way around it. And and God does. God is our ever-present help and source of strength. And so... Verse 30 is emphasizing the not only the limitation of human ability, but the inadequacy of human ability. And what uh, Isaiah is basically saying is that even though this may happen, even though you may be overwhelmed, uh, it's different for those who wait upon Yahweh, those who have their, their trust in Him. Uh, when we come to the, the word for wait here. It is the Hebrew word kavah, which means basically it's translated to wait, but it's, it's more than just sort of sitting there twiddling your thumbs. It, it's emboldened by a future orientation of expectation. So the, a, a second way in which it's used and translated is the idea of hope, because you're waiting expectantly for something. You're not just Waiting, stopping, hoping, looking at your watch every five minutes, something's going to happen. But it's waiting for something positive to happen. There's a tone of expectation and confidence that's part of uh, part of the waiting process. So it has that idea of waiting expectantly, of having confident expectation. Now, you may have read in some books, older books, that talk about the faith rest drill, uh, have explained this word as having a background in weaving, and that's completely and totally erroneous. Uh, some of that work, and most anything written before the early 90s, would probably go back to that because that idea came out of a, a Hebrew lexicon known as, by those of us who've used it forever and ever, uh, as BDB, which is an abbreviation of the author's, the editors, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the BDB lexicon came out in uh, 1918 or 1919. I think there was an earlier 1916 edition. Uh, that went into public domain. So if you use a computer program, if you use Accordance, you use Logos, you use Word Search, some of these other programs, Bible Works, they will have that 1916, 1917, I think, edition of BDB in there. You can also get the upgraded version. But BDB was written right before this explosion of discovery of ancient Near Eastern languages. Uh, Ugaritic was discovered in the 20s. Akkadian was discovered in the early 20th century. And with the study of these uh, related Semitic languages to Hebrew, they came to, uh, the positive thing is it corrected the understanding of a lot of words in Hebrew. The idea that was taught that this is, waiting is the idea of uh, uh, weaving a rope. 
that you lay in one thread, then another thread, then another thread, and as you weave it together, it produces something of strength. That's completely erroneous. It has nothing to do with the history or the background of the word. Uh, the key tool that's used for lexical work now in Hebrew is called Hal or Halot, for, which stands for the Hebrew Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament. And this was a multi-volume work that came out in the early 90s and is also available in most of your uh, lexicons. One of the problems that, that you get with BDB, also just as sort of an aside, is that um, the, when the New American Standard Bible was translated, the default position of the translators was to take the meaning that BDB assigned to the Hebrew word, and they took that without question, without any further analysis. And by the late 60s, when New American Standard was translated, there was a lot of uh, new lexical data that had come out since the 20s. Uh, so it's important to understand the sense of these words. And in in uh, Halot, the basic meaning of, of uh, the word is to of Kavah is to wait expectantly for something, to hope confidently for something, and has nothing to do with the literal meaning of weaving something together. No matter how helpful that illustration was, it's erroneous and has nothing to do with the background uh, background of the word. It's very similar to the Greek word elpis, which has that idea in the Greek as well of a confident expectation. Now, the word uh, kava is used several places. You can take out your Bible concordance, Strong's concordance, Young's concordance, some of the better concordances, or you can usually search this somehow with some different computer programs, and you can find other places in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word is used. And in doing that, you can discover some other tremendous passages and promises. Isaiah 25.9 states, It will be said in that day. This refers to a future time. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. And whenever you see that uh, uppercase Lord, it emphasizes the, uh, uh, translates the uh, tetragrammaton, the personal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. See, there's our word. We have waited hope, uh, expectantly for him. And the conclusion, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 33, 2 states, O Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. This is a prayer, a cry for God to rescue them in times of trouble, uh, based upon the fact that we are waiting expectantly for this deliver, the deliverance. Psalm 25.5 states, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait confidently, expectantly all the day. Psalm 27.14 reads, Wait upon the Lord. This is a command. We are to wait expectantly on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. What a great verse to to claim when we feel overwhelmed by the details of life. God will strengthen our heart. He'll strengthen our soul, our mind from his word. It's not just God's not just going to zap you and make, make you feel better, but you're going to focus on his word, and that's going to give strength to your soul. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And then we have a connection to hope in these two verses, Psalm 39.7 and Psalm 130, verse 5. Psalm 39.7 states, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope 
is in you. So we have the connection of the word wait, which is kava, with this other Hebrew word, yachal, which also is a synonym meaning to wait or to hope confidently for God. Psalm 130, verse 5 says, I wait, kava, kava rather, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Twice kava is used there, and then in conclusion, and in his word, I do hope. See, the focus is in his word and what he has revealed. That's his, it gives us a confident expectation of the future. So the, the verse starts off, those who wait uh, upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, this is another interesting and important word to see here for renew. It is the Hebrew word um, chalaf. It's a rough guttural ch, chalaf. It's in the hifil, which is causative, which gives it more of, a, of an intensified meaning. And it means not just renew in the sense of, of getting something new or in addition to the strength we already have. It is a word that talks about exchanging one thing for something else. So we're taking our strength and it's irrelevant, it fails, and we're replacing our strength with God's strength. It's not that God just comes along and sort of reinforces us a little bit. The emphasis on, on here is that it it is really going to uh, strengthen us and and uh, in an exchange of his strength for our strength. So what we see here, just to bring up a little summary, those who wait upon the Lord, this is a wait that has a confident expectation. It's not a waiting that is some sort of psychological gimmick or tool, which we often see in a lot of uh, uh, motivational speakers today, where they're really talking about faith in faith. And you hear people say, well, just trust. Trust in what? Or just believe. Things will get better. And it's sort of this belief in an impersonal universe that somehow uh, there something is going to align itself in the stars and somehow things will straighten uh, out. Uh, some trust in some impersonal cosmic deity that somehow the universe will right itself and everything will end up being okay. You often hear Christians say that. But, but the, e is, the key is trust in the Word of God. Trust in God's promises. Focus upon uh, him, the, the, the text is saying that they wait on Yahweh. They wait upon the, the person of God. And for a Jew, that would be a reminder. Using that name, Yahweh is associated with God's covenant with Israel. And it would be a reminder to them that they are to trust in that person who who has guaranteed the destiny of Israel by virtue of his own character in the covenant. And so they trust in the person of God because of how he has uh, revealed himself. It's not just an act of believing in belief. And then it says that those who wait will do something. They will have an exchange of strength as a result of waiting upon the Lord. Now, this word halaf is used in a, a fascinating passage over in Job. Uh, Job 14 14 states, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait, okay, until my change comes. So it connects that change to waiting. Now, he's not 
looking for some burst of new energy, that God's going to somehow uh, give him a little more of what he already has. And it's also a context, if you look at Job, uh, Job 14, it's a context that involves uh, despair on Job's part as he looks around at the environment around him. We look at the opening verses and we read, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Doesn't that just lift up your soul? Don't you feel better now? You're born of a woman and your days are full of adversity. That's not a positive thought. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Life is short and ephemeral. It really doesn't have any, any, any long-term value. Uh, you're here today and you're gone tomorrow. It's, it, he's very negative at this point. He says uh, in verse 3, Do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? He's responding to his critics at this particular point. Then we'll just kind of move forward to verse 7. In his argument, he says, uh, in 14.7, he says, For there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, then it will sprout again. You chop down a tree, it, it's going to be, it's going to come back. Maybe there'll be a new shoot, and it will still develop, and tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground. Uh, there's still some kind of hope. Uh, in verse 10, he, continue, he goes back to this note of futility, and he says, But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. This is a very depressing uh, time. But then when we come to verse 14, his shifting his thinking away from the human viewpoint, focus on circumstances to divine viewpoint. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. So this is talking about something that is completely new. A picture of a change from one thing, his mortal body, to something else. And and notice it's based on way. It, it's a change that takes place over time. It's not immediate. And so we can apply this to the principle of waiting, that, that we wait and it goes on and on and on. We may not see the fulfillment of that for many, many years, and we may not see the victory over our enemies until the Lord returns. But it will happen. And uh, then goes, Job goes on to say in verse 15 that, uh, giving uh, a great promise. He says, You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. So here he is expressing uh, his hope in God and the background for this, the main reason we looked at it is this idea of change is something that is an exchange of one thing for something else and it comes over time and involves waiting. So we're waiting upon the Lord. Now next time I'm going to come back. We'll have a br brief review and then we're going to go forward into talking about uh, some other ways to claim promises and going to the next stage, which is understanding the underlying rationale. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to be reminded of your faithfulness and of your word. And we pray that you will help us to understand these things and to implement them into our lives, that we might be challenged to memorize Scripture, to make it part of our souls, so that as we go through life we can uh, react to situations, uh, claiming promises, focusing on your word, ultimately leading our attention, our concentration to who you are, your love for us, your care for us, and your provision for us in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.